Now, there are many bold proclamations that the Bible is involved in making, but the biblical worldview unashamedly proclaims that there is purpose to life, that nothing in life is arbitrary or happen chance, and that there are no accidents. If you're a follower of Christ, that's what we believe. That's what we believe the Bible teaches. Long before you were conceived by your parents, that there is a God in whose mind you were first conceived. Uh, he fashioned and he uh, prescribed every single detail of your body. He purposefully chose your background, uh, the color of your skin, uh, the family that you would be born into, uh, the time that you would be born, the people and the events that would be a part of your life. And so words such as fate and chance Luck, coincidence have no place in the biblical dictionary. You're alive, I'm alive at this very moment because God created you and wanted you to be alive. While to our limited vision of life, all of the details and intricacies of life and how God orchestrates things behind the scenes may most of the times be hidden to us. But every now and then, the biblical writers under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit uh, pull back the curtain just enough to show us what God is doing uh, behind the scenes as he runs and sustains this world. Not only do they reveal what God is doing, uh, but they also show us how what we, yes, you and me do here on earth, that it does really matter. And so our passage for today is one such instance where the writer gives us a glimpse of God's sovereignty and his providence, even as man's will and his response is at play. But you might ask, well, why study this passage at all? Well, those are good things, but why study this passage? Uh, shouldn't it be enough for a believer to know that God is sovereignly in control of the larger and smaller details of life? That he is sovereignly in control is clearly taught in the scriptures. How he does it is what is laid out for you and me in this chapter. Uh, that God is sovereign is the principle, and the events in this chapter reveal to us how that is played out in the daily routine of life. How does God work through providential circumstances and answered prayers? Uh, that prayer that you prayed the other day, uh, did God even hear that? Uh, what is the significance of maintaining faithful relationships within the community of believers. Now, what is the value? What are the blessings associated with obedience? What role does faith, prayer, and reliance on God's leading play in our life? And what is God's design for marriage? And how does faithfulness, both ours to God and God's to us, play a role in such a relationship? Uh, Genesis 24 answers those questions for us. Overall, we will come away witnessing God's active involvement in the lives of his people and his faithfulness to guide them according to his purposes. And we will see all of that in the way that a bride was chosen for Isaac. Now, because of the events in the text and the events having to do with the selection of a bride for Isaac, I've titled our lesson for tonight, Here Comes the Bride. And as we get into the text, you will see why 
that is an appropriate title for, for this text. We have 67 verses to cover tonight. Um, and we will try our best to be able to cover those verses. If I had to summarize tonight's lesson, it would be this. Uh, followers of Christ, followers of Christ trust the Lord to give them guidance and success through his covenant faithfulness as they act responsibly in obedience to the covenant. Uh, followers of Christ trust the Lord to give them guidance and success through his covenant faithfulness as they act responsibly in obedience to the covenant. And in chapters 25 verse, in chapter 25 verse 20, we are told that Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, uh, which means by the time chapter 24 rolls in, three more years after Sarah's death have passed by. And what we find in, in the chapter, in chapter 24, are events that happened really within a very short period of time, perhaps even within a span of three months. So let's look at it together. As we think of what God wants, to learn, wants us to learn from this chapter, first of all, we see the commissioning of the servant of the bride, servant for the bride. The commissioning of the servant for the bride. Verse 1 to verse 9. Now Abraham was old, uh, advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he owned, please place your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live. Moses begins by telling us the condition and the circumstance in which Abraham the patriarch is. He is old and he is advanced in age. Uh, that is, he's coming to the end of his active life on earth. Also, the text tells us that he was blessed by the Lord in every way. Verse 1. Now, by this time, Abraham is 140 years old. We know from other texts that he lives for 35 years more. He has more wives and more concubines. But right now, to him, it seems it, uh, he is coming to the end of his life. He knows that God's promises of all the descendants of the land and all the spiritual blessings that God had promised him are not going to come to pass in his lifetime. And he recognizes that Isaac needs to be married for the promises to come true. So what does he do? He calls his servant, the oldest of his household, one who is in charge of all that Abraham owned. And what does he do? He commissions him and charges him with the task of finding a wife for Isaac. Notice we are not given the name of the servant in the text. Some think it was Eliezer. Remember, he was introduced to us in chapter 15. But that chapter was almost 50, 60 years back from this particular event. So others disagree that this is Eliezer. Um, but it, it is probably purposeful that Moses doesn't mention the name of the servant. He recognizes then, Abraham recognizes that he might die soon. So he makes the servant swear by the name of, by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that he will not take a wife for Isaac from the Canaanites. That is where they were living right now. But that he will take a wife for him only from his country and from his relatives. But what if a woman is not willing to come back with me to Canaan? Verse 5. Should I take Isaac to the land where you came from? That's a good question. 
What is Abraham's answer? Verse 6, absolutely not. Verse 7, he gives the reason. Notice, he gives the servant the reason. The Lord, the God of heaven, who called me and promised me this land, he will ensure that he sends his angel, that he will go before you, and that will ensure that your mission will be successful. For the Lord to follow through on his promises about the descendants, you must remember that he is a faithful God and that he always acts in line with his character and he it is who will ensure that this mission is successful. Verse 7. And while we can trust God to do his part, I want you to ensure that you do not fail in your responsibilities, my servant. That's what Abraham is saying to his servant. I want you to place your hand under my thigh. Why is that the case? Well, the thigh was considered a source of posterity in the ancient world. And the location was very close to the loins or the genitals. Abraham, you see, was promised a seed by God. And this was being passed to the son and to the grandson. And by asking the servant to place his hand under his thigh, Abraham was making the servant swear on the seed of Abraham that he would find a wife for Isaac. Now, this was a very solemn and a serious oath that this servant was taking. If you think of our culture right now, if, if, if we take an oath in, in, in the court, we take an oath to swear on the Bible. The Hebrew custom was to swear on the circumcision, uh, which was the mark of God's covenant. Now, that, that explains why Abraham has this unique request from this servant. And what does he say? Yes, I will do what you say. But what if the woman is not willing to follow me? Well, if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you're free of your oath. Verse 8. And then you're free from this oath. What I want you to absolutely ensure, this is what Abraham is saying to his servant, is that you do not take Isaac back there. And so the servant places his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, as he swore to him about this particular act. It's commissioning. What are some things that we can immediately gather from this particular section of verses? Well, first of all, biblical marriage is a union of a man and a woman who are believers. Why does Abraham insist that he take someone from his own relatives? Well, for the preservation of the seed, more than anything else, and perhaps even Abraham doesn't fully recognize this aspect, but God is preserving the seed through the promised line of Abraham. That's why he insists that someone from his relatives be the one that Isaac marries. And so we can say that biblical marriage is a union of a man and a woman who are believers. Now, there is no evangelistic aspect to marriage. Now, that is to say, if you are a believer, you are not to think about the steps of marrying someone who is not a believer. No, biblical marriage is a union of a man and a woman who are believers. But secondly, if you notice these nine verses, you can see the involvement of the Lord in this entire process. Uh, verse, notice verse uh, 20, uh, chapter 24, verse 1, And the Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. And notice verse 3, And I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, and then you go down to verse 7, the Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth. All of these instances are revealing to us that the Lord himself is involved 
in the process. For those of us who are thinking, do I have to do everything? What a great relief this is, right? No, God is involved in your life and God cares for you more than you can imagine or even think. The Lord himself is involved in the process. That brings us to the next section, which is a larger section as we consider the character of the bride. Verse 10, then the servant took 10 camels from the camels of his master and set out with a variety of good things of his masters in his hand. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. He made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at evening time, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show loving kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, I'm standing by the spring and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now may it be that the girl to whom I say, please let down your jar so that I may drink and who answers drink and I will water your camels also. May she be the one whom you appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this I will know that you have shown loving kindness to my master. A journey of almost 700 miles, which, covered at least over a, which was covered at least over a month's period of time is just mentioned in passing between verse 10 and verse 11. Uh, the servant is well prepared. He takes 10 camels and a variety of good things, food, supplies, uh, perhaps ways to protect himself on this long journey. Uh, they were also carrying, remember, some precious metals with them. And they are on their way to Mesopotamia. He's in the land now that he needs to be in. But the question is, who the bride for his master would be? Now, that is a question that continues to plague him. Now, this is probably something that he may have thought for at least over a month's period as they were traveling to this location. Location, And so he and his entire entourage are tired and thirsty. His camels are thirsty, but his mind is still focused on the task as, at hand that his master had given him. What a good servant this is. And how is God going to reveal the person to him? And so what does he do? Well, let me tell you what he does not do as he first steps down from that camel. He does not take his digital device and go to eharmony.com and fill out 500 questions, although there's nothing inherently wrong or sinful in having a profile, so don't get me wrong there on a Christian marriage site or dating site. But notice what he does first, verse 12. He prays. What a refreshing thought. He prays. He involves God. He calls upon God, and this is his prayer. Notice verse 12. O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show loving kindness to my master Abraham. He invokes the name of Yahweh, the covenantal God, the God who has made a covenant with Abraham and with his descendants, and he expresses his overall desire, and then notice he appeals to the kindness, the loving kindness of God. Uh, that, that word, we've heard it before, it's hesed, hesed. Now, if you've been at our church for some time, you've heard this word before. It's the word that attempts to capture the faithful and eternal and limitless love of a merciful and a compassionate God. Uh, this is not just being kind or friendly with someone. No, it's the disposition of the heart to show abounding and amazing grace to the object of one's love. 
It's a love that is seen in deeply significant action. It's God's love displayed towards God's people. It's a love that God demonstrated in sending his son for you and for me. It's a love that is seen in God forgiving us and providing for us salvation for us in and through his, his son. So it's a very big deal. Every time this word is mentioned, you want to stop and take notice what God is doing in those chapters, in those verses. It's a word that is mentioned about 250 times in the Old Testament. And in, in the book of Genesis, it, it's mentioned 11 times. In the entire book, in the 50 chapters, it's mentioned 11 times. And four out of those 11 times, it's mentioned in this chapter. Uh, so you want to take note of that word. It's mentioned in chapter, uh, chapter 24, verse 12, verse 14, and then verse 27, and then again in verse 43. So we need to pay attention to this. And why is it a big deal? You see, it's a big deal because Abraham at this stage is old and advanced in his age. And Isaac is now the sole carrier of that seed. And if Isaac is not married, and if he does not have children, that, then that may, at least from a human perspective, put the rest of the descendants, descendants in jeopardy. And so the servant invokes the steadfast love of God. Lord, I'm standing by the spring, he says, and the daughters of men are coming to draw water. May it be that the one to whom I say, please let down your jar so that I may drink, and who answers me, drink, and I will water your camels also. May she be the one you appointed for your servant Isaac. And that is how I will know that you have shown loving kindness to your master. Now, remember, this is a description. This is describing for us what happened in the case of Isaac and Rebekah. Uh, this is not prescribing for us what we should do. So, guys, you don't have to go and buy camels, okay? No, this is describing for us what happened in the case of Isaac and Rebekah. Now, the request that he makes to the Lord is very specific. He's not looking for a miracle. He's not looking for a spectacular sign. He's looking for the Lord to guide his steps. Now, it would have been common courtesy to offer water to a stranger in those days. But what would not be common is for that individual to offer water for the camels. Now, why would that not be common? Well, here's why a typical camel has the capacity to drink about 20 to 25 gallons of water. And a typical jar during those days, at least a large one, would hold about three to four gallons of water. And notice he says the phrase, let down your jar, is basically telling us, it's alluding to the fact that the person had to go down into some well to get water and then bring it up again. So, 10 gallons, uh, 10 camels rather, uh, 25 gallons, would mean at least 60 to 65 trips to get water and hours of work. But why is this a test? Why should providing water for camels be a test? Well, here's why. Whoever willingly offers to do this is not only showing herself to be kind and compassionate, but also someone who is hardworking, not afraid to put in some extra efforts, industrious, and certainly someone who is not lazy. And whoever would offer to do this would show herself to be capable of handling the work that it will entail being Isaac's wife. This is no arbitrary prayer request. 
uh, from, on, uh, on behalf of, of his master by this servant. How does the Lord respond to such a prayer request? Notice verse 15. Even before he had finished speaking, the girl he is praying there shows up. Praying for shows up. Behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor, came out with her jar on her shoulder. It reminded me as I was looking at this text of Isaiah 65, verse 24. It will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they're still speaking, I will hear. While he's still speaking, the answer to his prayer is right there. What did we notice the theme of this text was? Followers of Christ trust the Lord to give them guidance and success through his covenant faithfulness as they act responsibly in obedience to the covenant. And what do we see the servant doing? He's doing exactly that. Can you see the sovereignty and the providence of God on one side and then the servant praying on the other side? You know, think about this as you visualize in your head. While the servant was on his way to the spring that evening, throughout the day God was preparing Rebecca to come to that spring just as the exact time. Notice her description, verse 16. She's described, first of all, as a, as a girl. The girl was, the girl, it says, was she was very beautiful. Now, that is not a characteristic that Abraham had asked his servant to look for, but it's just mentioned for our information here. It says she's very, she was very beautiful, and that then we are told that she, is a, she was a virgin. Now, the word virgin can refer to someone who is young, you can also refer to someone who is married and unmarried. It's typically used for a girl who is a virgin. That's what the word is typically used for. But just in case that is not clear, notice the next part of the phrase goes on to remove all ambiguity. The meaning of the word is explained, and no man had relations with her. Let me make a quick application for us here as we begin this text itself. You know, God's standard for marriage hasn't changed. It has remained the same. And so this is what we can say. Sexual activity is to be enjoyed within the bounds of monogamous heterosexual marriage. Now, isn't it God's word which says, Hebrews 13:4, marriage is to be held in honor among all and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge which is to say sexual activity outside of the bonds of marriage is not only prohibited, it is also condemned in the severest of terms, reminding the readers that God will judge. Uh, first of all, it says fornicators, that is individuals who are involved in sexual activity before marriage, and then adulterers, that is individuals who are involved in sexual activity after marriage with someone who is not their spouse. Also think about this. This is, uh, Genesis 24 is the longest chapter in Genesis. A longest section of a particular event. And what is this chapter about? It's about marriage. And that gives us an indication of the priority of, of a God-honoring marriage. But you know, I would be giving you only half a picture if I don't also remind you of God's grace and loving kindness towards you in sending his son for you. 
Uh, perhaps you were involved in disobeying God in this area in the past. Or you may be involved in disobeying God in this area at this very moment in your life. What, what does God's word say to you? Listen, there is no sin beyond the grace and mercy of God. But you must repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and he will save you and he will forgive you. He will take your sins and he will nail it to the cross and he will never hold you responsible for them. Because he will lay your sins and my sins on his son, his one and only son, his perfect son, and he extends forgiveness to you and to me. So this is what I will say. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. If you're a believer and you have sought the Lord's forgiveness, this is a great reminder of the grace and mercy that he has extended to you. So quick application, sexual activity is to be enjoyed within the bounds of a monogamous heterosexual marriage. Notice verse 17. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, please let me drink a little water from your jar. And the text goes on to tell us that what the servant was looking for was fulfilled. Even though what he was looking for is fulfilled, yet the mission is not complete. It may be that she fulfills all the qualifications he was looking for, but then it may happen that she may not be a relative of Abraham. And so we are told in verse 21, the man was gazing at her in silence to know whether the Lord had made his journey successful or not. As an expression of thanks for her hard work and generosity, notice he gives her gold ring and two bracelets. Verse 22. And then he asks her the important question. A question that reminds the readers how single-mindedly focused the servant was on the task that his master had given him. Notice he does not ask her name. He asks whose daughter are you? He wants to see if it's worth spending any more time with this kind and hardworking girl. Tell me, is there a place for us to lodge in your father's house? What does she do? She tells him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. And then out of the abundance of her generosity, in verse 25, she says, again, she said to him, we have plenty of both straw and feed and room to lodge in. The mention of Nahor actually connects all the dots for the servant. And he bursts out in praise and worship of the Lord. Before we look at that, think about the fact that this is a woman, this is a girl. And you, you think, you know, if, if she needs to commit to something, she needed to ask her parents about providing a place to stay for this big entourage that was traveling with this servant. But she doesn't even check. One reason could be that it may be that her family is already very generous and it may not really be a big deal for them to host guests like this in this manner. In either way, it speaks highly of the kindness, of the compassion, and of the large-heartedness of Rebecca. Notice what the servant does in response to her revealing her identity. Uh, this is his response to God answering his prayer. He takes the time to again acknowledge the character and the loving kindness of God. What he has done, the fact that the Lord has guided him, the Lord has led him. He doesn't take any credit for himself 
verse 27. Now, he, he does not reflect on all the hard work he's put in traveling all those many miles. No, when the Lord answers his, pra- answers his prayer, he bows down and worships the Lord. He has done his due diligence. He is in the right place. He has checked the character and the abilities of this bride, Rebecca. He has made sure that this is someone who's related to Abraham. Uh, but there's something more that he needs to check. He needs to check if the woman is willing to follow him back to be married to Isaac. And so that brings us to this next larger section, which is the consent of the bride. The consent of the bride. Verse 28, Then the girl ran and told her mother's household about those, these things. Now Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban, and Laban ran outside to the man at the spring, when he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's wrists, and when he heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, saying, this is what the man said to me, he went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. Soon as she is done, she runs back to her mother's household. It is possible that she runs to his mother's household uh, because earlier, remember, we were told that her father also had concubines, and perhaps there was a separate section where the mother is lodged, and that, therefore she goes there first. Rebecca's brother Laban sees the ring and the bracelets on his sister's wrists. He hears Rebecca's account and he rushes to roll out the red carpet for this servant. Right away, we are introduced to the commercial and the material mindset of Rebecca's brother Laban. We will come back to this attitude later on when we study Jacob's life, but we are given a heads up about his mindset in this verse. As soon as he sees those, uh, those rings and the bracelets on his sister's wrists, he is off trying to roll the red carpet for Abraham's servant. He invites the servant and his big entourage, extends hospitality to them, gives them water to wash their feet, gives, them, gives food to the animals, to the camels, and then he offers food to the guests. Knowing that all of this was prompted when he saw the gifts his sister received, you have to question really the material mindset of Laban. But that's not really the point of the text at this stage. But unlike the material mindset of Laban, the servant had a missional mindset. He was on a mission. And what does he say to Laban? He says, I cannot eat. I will not eat until I have told you why I am here. And so Laban agrees to hear him and What we have then is from verse 34 to verse 48 is a recap of everything that happened from verse 1 to verse 27. How did this journey begin? What were the specific instructions that his master gave him? The prayer at the spring when he arrived and how the Lord answered those prayers. The interaction with Rebecca and then finally his act of worship are all rehearsed for Laban and for Bethuel. The importance that God places on how he does things. And at the end, he concludes all of that by saying, with all that I've shared with you, tell me, in verse 48, and verse 49, tell me how are you going to respond to my master Abraham? I am just his servant. I'm just following his instructions. Now, as soon as he says that, you can immediately sense a certain tension in the story, especially if you don't know what's going to follow. As we wait the response from Laban, who seems to be the leader in the house, even though his father is there, perhaps he is old, but Laban is the leader here. 
And as, as Laban and Beth will hear, hear that, it's abundantly clear to them that this is no ordinary visitor, that this is no ordinary visit, and this is no ordinary sequence of events. It's clear to them that the hand of the Lord is involved in guiding this entire process. So what do they say? Notice verse 50. The matter comes from the Lord, so we cannot speak to you bad or good. We agree that this is the hand of the Lord that's involved in this process. And so what is, what is, what is more for us to say? As a family, we agree for you to take Rebecca to go with you. We give our blessings for her to be the wife of Isaac, just as the Lord has spoken. And with that, the biggest hurdle in this entire process has been crossed. What do you think the servant does as he hears this response? He again bows before the Lord. Notice verse 52. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the ground before the Lord. This entire section is a seeped and submerged in prayer. One quick application before we move forward, and it is to do with the providential and sovereign hand of the Lord. He has been directing the steps of the servant. He has been affirming and responding to the prayer requests that have been come to him through his servant, while God himself is totally and completely in charge. Now, the servant on his part is quick to give credit to the one to whom it belongs. He has been a good servant, he has been a loyal servant. He has followed the directions of his master, Abraham. He has bathed his efforts in prayer. And he has taken time to express his gratitude to the Lord for what he has done all along. There's not even a hint in the text that the servant is doing his own thing. Making his own efforts, proceeding with his own logic. No. His whole mission is focused on the guidance and the leading of the Lord. Now go back to verse 27. This is after Rebecca confirms her identity. Notice what it says there. It says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his loving kindness and his truth toward my master. As for me, the Lord has guided me in the way to the house of my master's brother. No, he is fully dependent on the Lord's guidance and his leading. Now, here's an application for those of us who are looking to be married one day, that make sure that you seek to honor the Lord through that relationship that you're seeking. And make sure that you, first and foremost, seek to honor the Lord through that relationship that you're seeking. If you don't bathe your desires and your thoughts and your emotions in the word of God, if God is nowhere in the picture as you pursue this person, if your mind and heart is not immersed in communing and communicating with God, if you're not soaked and submerged in loving God and seeking to please God through your decisions, can I say this as gently as I can? You're playing a dangerous game with God. You see, because once the heart is committed without God at the center, very soon the mind follows aimlessly behind and very soon you're doing things that have nothing to do with honoring God. So make sure that first and foremost, you seek to honor the Lord through that relationship 
Frequently, I'll, I'll talk to some of you as you're pursuing a relationship, and I'll ask, is this person making you more godly? Is this person helping you to be more like Christ? Is this person encouraging you to be in God's word? Is, is, are, are you having that kind of an effect on the other person as much as you're expecting them to have that effect on you? No, seek to honor the Lord through your relationship. As soon as the family agrees, verse 53, the servant brings out more gifts. And culturally and traditionally, towards, um, they are counted towards a dowry, a gift for the family for giving their daughter. Notice verse 53. The servant brought out articles of silver and articles of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave precious things to her brother and to her mother. They eat then, they sleep, and when it is morning, they are ready to go. And at this point, you sense another tension in the story. Notice Rebecca's mom and brother, what they say. Verse 54, at the end, the servant says, send me away to my master. But her brother and her mother say, let the girl stay with us a few days, say 10. Afterwards, she may go. No, the, no says the, the servant, do not delay me. Since the Lord has prospered my way, send me away that I may go to my master. The servant is quick to respond and insists on not holding them back. And he appeals to the Lord's guidance and then asks permission to leave. All right, they say. We want to make sure, though, we take Rebecca's wishes into consideration. So for those of you who thought that she has no role to play in all of this, uh, here is what she wants. Notice, so they call her and ask, will you go with this man? Verse 58. It's kind of like a declaration of marriage. And what does she say? I will go. I will go. Will you go with this man? Now you have to remember that by this time, Rebecca has hardly known this servant for less than 12 hours. Uh, but she has heard the story. Uh, she has seen clearly God's hand on this man and on the uh, on his journey and on, on every detail of that story. And so she responds, I will go. Uh, she has nothing to hold herself back. And so she is one who is willing to go. The bride then has consented. There's a proposal from the groom's family. And the bride has said, yes, yes, I will go. I will want to marry Isaac. And so what, do, what does the family do? They give her a helpmate or a nurse, as it says here. Verse 59, and then they send her with Abraham. They give her a helpmate. They bless her with the blessings of prosperity and victory. And then they send her off. Verse 60 and 61. One quick application before we move forward. As you read all of this, perhaps you're wondering, is this text telling me how the process should work in my own pursuit of a life partner? And again, let me remind you, no, it's not. If you talk to the nine or so couples that are here, I can almost guarantee you that God has been very creative in how we have met our spouses. But there are principles in this text that we can draw and apply in our own context. And this one may sound a little countercultural, but so you want to hear me clearly um, and uh, carefully. Here's the principle. It's always wise 
It's always wise to seek counsel from a godly man or a godly woman before you take the step of committing yourself to another person. It's always wise to seek counsel from a godly man, a godly woman, before you take the step of committing yourself to another person. If you have parents, especially parents that are godly, that are in God's word, it's always wise to make a final decision having taken their inputs into consideration. Now, I want to be careful not to portray this application as an absolute, which is to say, I can't show a chapter and a verse that says to you, you have to seek confirmation from your parent or a ministry leader before you make a final decision. But I would say this, you know, there are only two extended narratives in the Bible on marriage. Uh, this one is one of them, and the other one is the book of Ruth. And in both instances, you have at least one other person involved in the decision-making process. Here you have the servant, of course. You have Rebecca's parents and her brother. And in Ruth's case, you have Naomi. Always wise to seek counsel from a godly man, a godly woman, before you take the step of committing yourself to another person. While we're at it and here, let me also mention this. Uh, there is a reason we have couples who serve as leaders in this ministry. Uh, they're there to shepherd and guide you, to counsel you, to love on you. They are all a great resource, especially as regards to what does the Bible have to say about marriage? And that brings us then to the final section of this narrative. Thirdly, fourthly, and finally, the consummation of the marriage, verse 61 to 67. Let me read those in its entirety, rather verse 62 to verse 67. Now Isaac had come from going to Beer Lahai Roy, for he was living in the Negev. Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening, and he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, camels were coming. Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel. She said to the servant, who is that man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, he is my master. Then she took her veil and covered herself. The servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. Thus Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. And you know, between verse 61 and 62, is another period of at least a month that is not mentioned, no details of that period are mentioned as the servant along with Rebecca and her nurse return from Mesopotamia. And now for the first time in verse 62, Isaac is introduced to us as one, uh, to us in the audience. Uh, this is the first time we actually see him in a text after the incidents on Mount Moriah. He was supposed to be dead, remember? but he's alive. And what is he doing? The text tells us that he was meditating. That's a very unique word, occurs only once, but there's a related word that occurs in Psalm 143, verse five, and there the word is translated as muse, or meditate or muse. But almost all commentators agree that Isaac was involved in praying. You know, first you and I were introduced to the praying servant and now we are introduced to the praying son. 
And as we've seen in Genesis, Isaac is the promised son. So who is he praying to? He's praying to the Lord. He's praying to Yahweh. As you think and step back and look at this text, this, this whole chapter from beginning to end is submerged and consumed in prayer. The Lord's guidance and direction and wisdom is sought through the means of prayer. And no wonder the Solomon, as he writes in Proverbs 3, he says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. What does Isaac do? Notice verse 63. He presumably moves forward as if to meet these visitors as he recognizes perhaps his servant that went with his caravan. Rebecca sees Isaac from a distance and the text tells us that she dismounts from the camel, verse 64. Now the word there for dismount is also translated as fall. That is to say she got off the camel in a hurry. Now if you're Rebecca, I'm sure you'll agree that there's a reason to feel excited. She's excited and that is the impression here. And then she has a sense that this may be the man that she is to marry. You can imagine her through that one-month journey from Mesopotamia to Canaan, asking all sorts of questions to the servant about Isaac, uh, his character, his habits, his nature, his love for God, his desire to please him, uh, perhaps even his color, height, and mannerisms. Uh, that explains as the servant may have drawn a picture of Isaac in front of her eyes, that she hurriedly got off the camel, and the man she has thought of for more than a month is right in front of her. As they come closer, she asks the servant, notice verse 65, who is the man walking in the field to meet us? And he confirms that that is his master. Notice another thing, the master is no longer Abraham. Notice Abraham is not even mentioned in this text because Isaac is the new master. She takes her veil, covers herself as she gets ready to meet Isaac. End of verse 65. As they get closer, the servant meets Isaac first. He recounts the entire narrative, verse 66, of his journey. And you can, you can just imagine the scene. He shares with Isaac everything he needed to share and then he steps back as he lets Isaac meet with Rebecca for the first time. You can just imagine him standing back and perhaps just even permitting his face to smile a little as he observes Isaac take over from here. And then the wedding is recorded for us in just one verse, verse 67. He takes Rebecca, brings her into Sarah's tent, which is to say that she is now the new matriarch of the family. She takes over Sarah's position in the family. Notice one last thing, especially the sequence. She first became his wife and then he loved her. The marriage brought comfort to Isaac after his mother's death. For those of us who are married for at least some time can attest to the fact that we love our spouses at least all the leaders tell me that, that we love our spouses more now than we did when we first married them. 
What a wonderful gift God has given to us. It's common grace as well, because remember, this gift is also available to all those who are not believers in him. But notice also in this text, there's no mention of Abraham. His words that he spoke in verse 8 are the last spoken words of Abraham before he died. And in that sense, the baton has passed from Abraham to Isaac. What are some lessons that we can learn? I've already shared many, many applications with you. The text is so large that I feel like I've almost cheated you of, of the applications. So we're going to have these slides um, on our website. So don't feel that you have to rush to get these applications. There's many, but just follow with me. First of all, something that shouldn't surprise you, and these are the applications as regarding marriage. Uh, first of all, and again, nothing new that you will see here, a biblical marriage is a union of two believers. A biblical marriage is a union of two believers. Uh, secondly, and more comforting for many of us, God is more concerned for your marriage than you are about your marriage. God is more concerned that you would be with the right person, a person that honors him, than what you can imagine or think. Thirdly, it's always worth waiting for God's choice of a partner. Don't let frustration take over. Don't do things. Don't look for shortcuts because you've waited patiently for too long. You've been faithful. You know, it's always worth waiting for God's choice of a life partner. Fourthly, and finally, as regarding marriage, seek godly wisdom from mature believers. Seek godly wisdom from mature believers. Um, I also mentioned at the beginning that there are applications as regarding uh, finding and doing the will of God. Uh, this has been, I have borrowed this from someone whose name I do mention there. As regards to the will of God, as you trace the entire events in this particular chapter, uh, he begins by saying, as regards to the will of God, you must search for answers according to God's word. Remember, Abraham alludes to God's promises to him. And because he alludes to God's promises, uh, this is the application from it. You must search for answers according to God's word. Secondly, you must believe God is faithful to his word. Abraham believed that. And as we get to know Isaac, you will see that he believes that as well. Uh, we saw in the last uh, chapter, uh, because Abraham believed what he did uh, about God, that God rewarded that. You must believe God is faithful to his word. You must plead with God to reveal his will. Here he's thinking of the servant that is praying just before he approaches Rebecca. You must observe how God answers your prayer. And his prayer was not fully answered because he at that time did not know that Rebecca was the one. And so he steps back, remember verse 21, where he steps back and he observes in silence. And fifthly, you must worship God for his work. What does the servant do after it's confirmed that this is Rebecca? Oh, he bows down and worships the Lord. You must submit to God's will. And you must obey God's call. Many have made that connection about decision-making and the will of God as to how this servant was directed. Yes, God directed him. God was sovereignly in control of everything. Yet you find the servant making efforts on his part. He did his part in that sense. But there's another whole section of application. 
on the surface level, yes, there is a bride being sought for Isaac. That's application level number one. On the second level is this decision-making process and the will of God. But there's a third level, and I think that's more profound as we see here, because many times the scriptures also compare Isaac and the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, you think of the fact that Abraham is the one who desired a bride for his son. And so one of the first comparisons you can make between Isaac and the Lord Jesus Christ is God was the one who desired a bride for his son. And who is this bride? It's the church, isn't it? In Isaac's case, a son was accounted as dead and then raised from the dead. Similar to the Lord Jesus Christ, he died and he rose again on the third day. A nameless servant was sent forth to get a bride for the son. And who is that? Well, some commentators say it's Eliezer. The word Eliezer means God of help or helper. And who is the Holy Spirit? He's the helper, isn't he? The lovely bride was divinely met, chosen and called, and then lavished with gifts. She was entrusted to the care of the servant until she met her bridegroom. Thirdly and finally, as we look at the applications, as we think of regarding Isaac's bride and Christ's bride. Now men, for all the times that a masculine pronoun is used to include even females, I think it's appropriate that for a long period of time, men would also be included as a bride. I think God has a sense of humor, doesn't he? We will be called, even the men, the bride of Christ. So Isaac's bride and Christ's bride. Just let me mention a few things. Notice, first of all, they were chosen for marriage before they knew it. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. They were necessary for the accomplishment of God's eternal purpose. Both Isaac's bride and Christ's bride. And they were destined to share in the glory of the Son. Remember the high priestly prayer of our Lord in John 17. They learned of the Son through his representative. And we must leave as Christ's bride all the joy to be with the Son. And finally, she was loved and cared for by the Son. There's many layers of application within this text. And I trust that it's helpful as you think through what the Lord has to teach us through his word. Let me close our time in a word of prayer and then we'll get into our small groups. Father, thank you for this wonderful reminder. A long chapter and yet emphasizes to us the fact of the importance that you place on marriage and how it's a picture of the relationship between Christ and his bride. But as we think of these things and as we reflect on these things, there are so many things that we have learned from this text. We pray that as you see fit, Lord, you would help us to apply those to our life. Help our desires, help our thoughts, help our actions to all be immersed in your word, and may the outflow of our life be one that clearly displays that we are your children when we're part of your family. I do pray for our small group's time. We pray that it would be discussions that would help in driving home these lessons. We ask these things in Christ's precious and worthy name. Amen.